welcome back to Costume Drama Rewind. Today, we're honoring the 400th anniversary of the 1621 Thanksgiving at Plymouth with a historically inspired, but almost entirely inaccurate abomination of nature. I mean, a cartoon that I'd never heard of before called The Mouse on the Mayflower that Megan suggested, I assume as a joke. Possibly as a hazing. <laughs> This was a Rankin-Bass production. It came out in 1968, and it features Tennessee Ernie Ford, Eddie Albert, John Geary, Joni Summers, Paul Fries, and the legendary voice actress June Foray. I also want to point out right now that the font for the title card of this cartoon is like literally the exact same font as the Kin Steakhouse salad dressing bottle. Look it up. You need to know that the Mouse on the Mayflower is my family's most treasured slash only Thanksgiving tradition. We had to take a pause for a couple of years because we wore out the VHS tape, but brought it back when I discovered the joy of bootleg YouTube versions of movies. So, uh, when did y'all start watching this? It was just there. It was always there. Like some sort of evil elder god? I think. So here's the plot. The pilgrims get on the Mayflower and sail to America and then celebrate Thanksgiving. And somehow all of their troubles are remediated by the timely interventions of an anthropomorphic mouse named Willem. Deus ex mousina, you might say? That was bad, Megan. Anyway, you've probably heard of the book Lies My Teacher Taught Me. This entire cartoon was basically lies an animated mouse taught me. The mouse promises at the beginning that- Excuse me, his name is Willem. <laughs> Willem Church Mouse. <laughs> Sorry. Mr. Churchmouse promises at the beginning that we're going to find out the real truth behind the pilgrims and the Thanksgiving, but it basically just trots out a bunch of myths and bad history and presents it as fact. Yeah, the mouse is a liar. I was, I promise you, extremely aware of this movie's historical shortcomings. I trust you. But until we watched it together, I had never really grasped how deeply bananas it is. The deus ex mousina is honestly probably the most normal part of the plot. In a short 45 minutes, it also manages to fit in a cringy love triangle and a villain subplot. There's a lot going on. And none of it makes any sense. So the three corners of the love triangle are Priscilla Mullins, John Alden, and Captain Miles Standish. This is taken straight from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's 1858 poem, The Courtship of Miles Standish. In both the poem and the movie, Standish fancies Priscilla, and he keeps sending Alden to, um, see to her needs? Anyway, Alden also fancies her, and she fancies him right back. And in both the movie and the poem, she asks, Why don't you speak for yourself, John? In a very not-British accent. Meanwhile, in the movie, she and John are actually running around first the ship and then Plymouth doing rather a lot of canoodling, usually without a chaperone. And I think we all know that would be not okay in Puritan society. Pretty much the only thing that's historically accurate here is that John Alden did actually marry her, and she was the only young single woman when they first started the journey. But in real life, he joined not as a religious refugee, but as just the ship's hired cooper, barrel maker. In real life as well, her dream sequence in which her fairy godmother appears to dress her up as a princess and foster her courtship with him feels like it'd get her accused as a witch. And... After watching how this shamelessly ripped off Disney, I say go for it. John and Priscilla were married for 64 years and had at least 10 children. It's believed that they have more direct descendants than any other couple in American history. One of their grandsons was arrested during the Salem Witch Trials and imprisoned for about 15 weeks, 
probably because word got around about his grandmother's fairy godmother dream sequence. Longfellow himself was actually a fifth great-grandson of John and Priscilla, and attributed his poem to family lore. Shockingly convenient family lore. Other descendants of John and Priscilla include the Adams family, not the spooky one, the political one, along with Julia Child and Dan Quayle, in the only time those two people will ever appear in a sentence together. <laughs> if, like us, you're local to DC, another of their direct descendants founded the iconic bookstore Politics and Prose. The villain subplot, meanwhile, dives right into the settlers' relationships with the Native Americans, and it centers the blame for it on a couple of troublemakers, basically ripping off one of the plots in The Tempest. Right after everyone boards the ship in Plymouth, we're introduced to our two baddies. I didn't bother to learn their names because you can tell right away they're evil because they're not conventionally attractive. They spend the voyage hatching plots to steal the gold that the pilgrims brought aboard the ship to pay for this voyage. Plots that I did not realize until embarrassingly recently made no sense. One of their schemes relies on not telling anyone that the main beam of the ship has cracked in a storm. Our baddies think that if everyone is forced to abandon ship, they will be able to steal the chest of gold and abscond in a rowboat in the middle of the North Atlantic. In a storm! I hope I don't need to outline the holes in this plan. It does allow the movie to work in the fact that the main beam did actually crack during the voyage. In real life, they fixed it with a construction brace. In the movie, they, metaphor alert, uh -huh. prop it up with the printing press, thanks to a little more deus ex mousina. Anyway, literally no sooner have they set foot on land than the villains immediately conspire to start a race war, which is narrowly prevented by, again, the mouse, who helps everybody become friends. In real life, when they first arrived, they saw the Wampanoags from a distance, but they didn't actually start communicating with them for four months. In March 1621, they made a treaty with the leader Massasoit, also called Usamiquam. This covered property rights, treatments of rule breakers, and it also established an alliance for mutual defense. The cartoon also fails to feature Squanto, who was a Wampanoag who'd been captured by British sailors and taken to England, but had later been able to come back home. Because he spoke English, he was able to translate and teach the pilgrims about crops native to the region. I know it would be out of the cartoon's scope to mention further relationships with the original peoples, especially since the Massachusetts Bay Colony crew arrives in 1630 and changes the dynamics. But something that I think is important to keep in mind with this cozy kumbaya depiction of life with the English and the Wampanoags, and especially during the Thanksgiving holiday itself, that is that relationships began to deteriorate because the English started violating their treaties. In our episode last year, when we reviewed The Crucible, we talked about how those violations led to King Philip's war in the 1670s, King Philip being Massasoit's son. After the war was over, the English enslaved many of the Native Americans, including Massasoit's grandson, and sent them down to Bermuda. Yeah, we definitely do not get any of those details from this movie. We do get a little bit of their difficult first winter, the Starving Time, when about half the Plymouth settlement died due to hunger or disease, but which the movie represents primarily with some aggressive sneezing. The next fall, the settlers did throw a Thanksgiving feast and invite the Wampanoags, which is correct. In the movie, they serve them turkey, which is not correct. There was a Thanksgiving meal to celebrate the harvest in 1621, and the Wampanoags did attend, and they all feasted on such traditional Thanksgiving delicacies as venison and shellfish. Most of what we know about this meal actually comes from just a few lines of one letter. More to the point, there are at least five other places in the Americas that claim to have hosted the actual first Thanksgiving meal. They are, in order, St. Augustine, Florida, in 1565, Newfoundland in 1578, San Elizaro, Texas in 1598, 
Popham Colony, Maine in 1607, and here in Virginia, Berkeley Plantation on the James River in 1619. All of these competing Thanksgivings have a few key elements in common. They all include a feast, they were all shared celebrations between explorers or settlers and Native Americans, they all included strong religious elements, and they are all really bitter at Plymouth Colony for hogging all the glory. None of them, as far as historians can tell, were ever saved from certain death by a mouse in a tiny hat. Darn. Speaking of hats, I'm never totally happy unless I get to talk about historic fashion. The Pilgrim's clothing in this movie is not technically wrong, except for the sea captain whose outfit looks closer to something like Captain Crunch, <laughs> but is contextually wrong. Sure, people back then wore breeches, weird hats, broad collars, basically looked like little lads who loved berries and cream, but that was for like church and important stuff. They wouldn't be wearing that while stuck on a ship or doing hard labor in the fields. And of course, the cartoon goes full stereotype for how the Wampanoags are dressed showing them with a stereotypical feather and leather headband, vests, no shirts. Wampanoag clothing was different. They did wear face and body paint, and they would have worn leggings, as depicted in the winter, but since it was winter when they were first shown, they would be wearing mantles and furs to actually keep warm. Concept. It helps. Dare I even ask how many Capitaine hats? Yes, there is actually a name for those tall funny hats they always wore. We are awarding to the mouse on the Mayflower. <laughs> oh, Megan. <laughs> anyway, moving on. We don't have any returning actors for the ongoing actor count tally, but I wanted to point out that Toei Studios, which did the animation, is the same group that did Sailor Moon and several other anime series. And you know who else worked on it? That's right, Miyazaki, one of the most famous anime illustrators of all time. He did Spirited Away, My Neighbor Totoro, Howl's Moving Castle, Princess Mononoke, etc., etc. Make of this what you will. Nerd. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on this journey through what is, on reflection, one of the weirder elements of my childhood. Next time on Costume Drama Rewind, we're reviewing what has been called one of the most historically accurate depictions of Native American life and culture on film, the 1991 Canadian-Australian drama Black Robe. Thanks for listening and happy Thanksgiving.